Hey there, listeners. This is Mac Christian here with the National Land Realty Podcast. I got a request for you, and that is to like, follow, and review this podcast. Your reviews are going to help us reach more people who are seeking information about their land. We want to provide as much value as possible for our listeners, and you're a part of that. I'm also going to be reading our reviews in future episodes, so your review just might be a star on our show. Now, thank you again for your time. Listening to shows like ours takes time, and we appreciate you spending yours with us. Now let's get to it. Welcome to episode number 17 of the National Land Realty Podcast, where we discuss all things land. Our goal here is to inform, educate, and entertain those of you who own land or are interested in the buying and selling of land throughout the United States. My name is Mac Christian, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer here at National Land Realty. I'll be your host for this episode. Now, in this episode, we'll be talking about hunting land improvement with Dr. Grant Woods of GrowingDeer.tv. Grant is known as Dr. Deer in some circles, and it's a name that's well-earned. He might be one of the most knowledgeable people on the planet for deer science, and he specializes in improvements to land for deer habitat. Grant is here to discuss his next venture after selling his famous hunting property, The Proving Grounds. Now, sit back and enjoy the show. I am sitting here with Dr. Grant Woods, uh, otherwise known as Dr. Deer and the host of GrowingDeer.tv, right? Um, That's correct. Yeah. Recently, uh, there's and there's more credentials in there. I feel like I'm doing it a disservice as far as credentials go. Um, but m- most recently, we at National Land Realty worked with Grant on the sale of his uh, his former property. Now, the the proving grounds, which was a large scale project to to make a well, you know what you can define. I was going to say it's going to make it make a property more habitable to deer, but you probably have a better way to say that, don't you? Well, you know, it was a great project. Uh, I bought the ranch about 20 plus years ago. And I think this probably is the best way to illustrate it. When I was walking the ranch, trying to determine if I wanted to purchase it, I've never walked a ranch in my career. I'm a consulting wildlifeologist where I found as many dead cattle as I did here, skeletons, they, they had starved. The, the land was so poor, and of course there, there was poor management, uh, that there were cattle skeletons on ridges and valleys, on side hills, and the land was inexpensive, and it's all I could afford at the time. And I said, boy, this would be a great project to see if we can you know, make this just good family hunting. I really wasn't envisioning the bigger picture at that time, just place my family and I would chase deer, hike, have a good time. That's excellent. So you mentioned that before the the, the cattle were every, that the cow bodies and everything. And it's it's crazy to me because every rancher I know, like you know, they'll they'll chase down you know one one out of line, like they, especially a bull, right? But yeah, anything yeah. that gets sort of out of place, like they make sure to find that stuff just to picture that where like, there's bodies. It's hard to imagine. Well, I think this was a special circumstance. The gentleman that originally owned the ranch, I think, was a good steward, and he passed away at a hospital and left the ranch to the hospital. And they had owned it seven years, and the accountant and the attorney never came to the ranch. So we got this big gift, you know. They never came here, and one of the neighbors was kind of a, you know, tough guy, and he decided it was his ranch. 
and he turned a bunch of cattle in here, but didn't feed them. You know, if it survived, great. He may have rustled them. I don't know. But if it survived, great. If it didn't, great. There was, you know, no cross fencing. It was, it was just horrible. And, and matter of fact, <laughs> when I purchased a ranch and, and, you know, noticed some cattle around still living, I go to a sheriff and said, hey, you know, my name's Grant, and I bought this ranch. There's some cattle on there, and I want to be a good neighbor, but I can't. The neighbors I knew, I all asked and called, hey, you know, who's cows? I hope you get them up, whatever. No one would claim them. Finally, the sheriff said, I always remember his quote. He said, boy, in Missouri, if they're on your land or your livestock, and I don't have time to mess with this, you do whatever you want. So I kept calling all the neighbors and saying, you know, I really want to put in some food plots and do some stuff. And please, if they're your cattle or, you know, whatever, I'll help you herd them up. But come so-and-so date. I'm going to start making a bunch of beef for my church. And it's just, you know, we're just going to process them all. And I, you know, I do this for a living or they're going to get gone. And the day before uh, the gentleman that owned the cattle called me up, said, Hey, you don't want to do that. And I said, well, you, you, you don't understand. You, you don't want to, you don't want to leave your cattle here because I've already talked to the sheriff and, and I have a plan. So anyway, we worked it out and, uh, and got him up, but he just didn't have any vested interest in the livestock. <laughs> So, so are you are you, are y'all friends now with the neighbors, or or did that cause conflict? Or? Yeah, no, no. I think that gentleman just has always behaved that way, and I think maybe the rest of the neighbors kind of appreciated someone, uh, <laughs> maybe not letting him have his way. There's always that one neighbor, you know. It's like you know, doesn't mend fences. Cows get out everywhere all the time. Like there's always, there's always that thing. Yeah, I mean, when you live in the country, I was raised in the country. Fences go down, big thunderstorm knocks the tree down or something. You help your neighbor get the cattle up. That's just no. that's just country living. Leaving them there yeah. for six years is not country living. You know, that's kind of abuse. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, a little bit about your background. I mean, so for for people listening that don't necessarily know who who yeah, Brant Woods yeah. is, how how would you describe yourself and and what you do? Um, yeah. You know, to, to anybody that didn't know. Yeah, so I, I was raised here in the Ozark Mountains, southwestern Missouri. And when I was a young boy, I had a rabbit trap line, if you will. We, my dad and I'd take scrap barn wood and build little rabbit traps. And, of course, I thought I was a big Yukon trapper, you know. And I remember so clearly it was a turning point in my life. And right before Christmas break, a little snow on the ground, I had to go do my chores every morning. And I'd check my trap line. My dad was feeding the hogs, I think. And I, I'd heard barbershop somewhere they're going to restock the deer there were no deer in that county i'd never seen a deer and the first deer i ever saw i found a female fawn in one of our little fields that morning that had been poached and ever since that day i've been fascinated with deer and really dislike poachers trespassers whatever and you know grew on up and i'm 61 years old so kids my age want to be in the army or you know be a policeman be a fireman all great things i just want to work with deer i know what that meant Deer biologist wanted to turn in. I just wanted to work with deer. First guy in the family go college type deal and just kind of, you know, bulldog my way through there somehow to end up working with deer. And in college, uh, I thought I might end up being a professor, but I love the field work. I love hands-on in the field, learning and helping other people improve their property and start doing a little assisting or consulting with projects. And 31 years later, here I am still consulting. That's, I don't think you've told me necessarily that part of your background before that makes it even, it makes it even cooler, you know, like that, that you were able to, to find the thing that you enjoy the most and then find a way to make it to where you get paid for that thing. Um, 
it's a rare it's a rare circumstance and uh that's i'm kind of blown away by that story i, I like i said i hadn't heard that before as far as like that 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 was sort of your thing from a young age that's so cool um so in in the progress of this you you've acted as a consultant for i'm sure you probably lost count now how many people's properties and how many clients you've worked with in the yeah, past i don't know how many from from new zealand to canada and every state that has a hunted whitetail population in in america specifically whitetail then right whitetail we do some turkey work do a little quail work uh but yeah, I'm a whitetail guy. My oldest daughter is Raleigh, uh, which stands, it's Old English for dweller by the deer meadow. And my youngest daughter is Ray, R-A-E, which is Hebrew for doe. I mean, deer impact everything in my life. <laughs> I love that. Um, so, so yeah, so you've, you've been doing this for a while and part so you, you had the proving grounds for 20 years was that right yeah 20 21 years yeah tracy on my wife tracy and i we purchased this ranch and just you know i had a uh over the shoulder bag spreader where i would spread seed and a backpack sprayer and a chainsaw that was my tools no tractor and just took off with no budget and as budget improved you know got a tractor whatever and just started working on more and more habitat and learning uh i'd been a consultant but you know when you're doing it for yourself you start throwing away the book knowledge and well, that worked, that doesn't work. Well, you know, I think I can find a more efficient way to get this same result. And it really, and it was never purchased to be this, but it was the best lab I could have for my business. You know, if you have to do it and it's coming out of your budget and your time and you have limited resources and you have success and you can teach other people how to do that, you can share those processes and continue to learn from other people and, share what you learn with other people. And it's just been a great for me. Uh, and I'm not done by any stretch, but a great learning process uh, of enjoying the property. And we lived on the property. So my family enjoyed the Creek and, you know, and, and hunting, but not just hunting, hunting for arrowheads or watching leaves change or, you know, just, just all the aspects of owning the property. Yeah. And, and so you, you had a huge emphasis on, uh, native plants there that the sort of you know w- where i see a lot of concentration on for say food plots and everything for mm-hmm. for bringing in deer is like you'll see you'll see like a monoculture right like plant a field of corn throw up a tree stand sit by yeah. it that kind of thing yeah but you put a big emphasis on a diverse range of plants and not using monocultures and then you used a lot of I mean, I want to say native plants, but I mean, plants that work best in that soil and in that area. I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, because I found that really interesting. Yeah. So, again, limited budget and deer uh, make a living zero, three feet off the ground. And and a rancher years ago had created pasture. But then when the, the neighbor took it over, he said everything grew up. So it was covered with eastern red cedar, which is a very invasive species here in the Midwest put that in scale. Oklahoma estimates they lose about 700 acres a day, eastern red cedar, and that's one tree here, one tree here, one tree here, but, you know, uh, it's very invasive, and any open areas were covered with eastern red cedar, so I started just felling cedars with chainsaw and let them lay there for a couple years and burn. We didn't plant in this native vegetation. The seed is in the soil, and fire is what released it, sunshine, removing the cedars so sun reached the soil and, and fire. 
and I started seeing these great results. I started doing it just simply to create some openings. It wasn't like, boy, I'm going to restore these great native species that are in the soil. Here. Okay. And, and through time, through time learning and, and watching and other fellow scientists working with me and visiting, we identified 176 different species of native grasses and forbs. That's rainforest diversity. And, and again, this is a process of years, not months, years. And started replicating that on other parts of my ranch and and then figuring out, well, if we burn it this month, we get these species responding. If we burn it this month, these species respond. And there is no one month. We want to burn a different portion of the ranch during different months so we get a bigger diversity of plants. And the reason you want diversity of plants is some are more drought resistant. Some will be higher in phosphorus, some higher in calcium. And that if you have a really diverse blend of annual forbs, say broadleaf plants like ragweed or desmodiums, a more popular plant, it makes a little seed quail love. Uh, you grow great deer. And it's like a soybean field, except a soybean field, of course, takes a lot of work and a lot of expense, and it's going to produce. Uh, and native vegetation, it's going to produce, there's a lot of variables here, but, you know, three, four, five, six thousand pounds per acre of forage. And there's a big range, drought, variety of beans, soil type, all these things. Native vegetation is going to produce on good sites about a thousand pounds per acre, give it again, big range. But you can go do 10 acres of native vegetation and have food and cover. And then your expense is over, except for occasionally burning it, which is real expensive every now and then using prescribed fire. So, yeah, we put a big emphasis, again, out of necessity, out of budget. And the context of what land we had, the Ozarks is really steep. A lot of places were just too steep to make a food plot. You would have erosion or actually risk tipping a tractor over. So mm. out of necessity, we learned some great lessons. And now managing native vegetation is a big part of what we do anywhere we work. I was going to say, too, you know, you were talking about the the yield on those between 3,000, what did you say, 3,000 pounds per, per, is it, was per acre? Native vegetation about thousand crop fields thousand? about three to six about three to six been on the crop and what, yeah native well, vegetation soy soy was three thousand per acre I think you said it was and then and then native was a thousand like it might be less yield but you don't have to work nearly as hard for it right and it's dr very native vegetation is very drought resistant yeah and you're getting cover and you know you you use prescribed fire over two three four years been on again the conditions where you are. To reset it you're not out there using diesel fuel or buying new tractor tires now i'm a huge food plot fan i love food plots so i'm not knocking that at all but i think you're right some people wait a little heavy just towards food plots mm -hmm. which is usually a real small percentage of the property maybe five percent of a property what are you doing with the other 95 percent of the property right so so yeah so so you you went through this project for for 20 years um you know it's a, a what that's almost 70% of your career, right? That you, do you spend, yeah. you know, managing this property and kind of turning this into your test lab. And I mean, really is like kind of the, the crown jewel of, of putting all your theories to practice. And then kind of, as you said, throwing away the book when you needed to, and like realizing the, the practical elements of what actually works. Um, how, how did it come about that you decided to, to want to sell in the first place? Well, um, my family and I, uh, just kept talking about it through time. Trace and I's original purchase was about 1500 acres and through time a neighbor would want to sell or something. We just, 
you know, little bits and pieces here and there from one acre to, you know, a couple hundred acres, just little bits and pieces. And we ended up with quite a bit of land, more land. And I had time or budget to really maintain like I like. So I just kind of let the back and again, in round numbers, 800 acres go just, you know, we occasionally hunt it, but we didn't really do much back there. Scratched out a couple of food plots, didn't do much. And, and I'm a worker. If, you know, if you shake my hand, you'll find calluses. I'm a worker. I'm a doer. Uh, and I kept looking at that going, boy, wouldn't it be fun to start over from the stuff I've learned. I don't mm. think it will take me 20 years. I think it'd take four or five years, you know, depending on again, rain. There's oh, biologists are really bad about saying if, or what if, or maybe, because there's all these variables in our lives. But, uh, and I just got really excited about, man, here's a new project. You know, you do it once and it works that chance and you know you just got the right rain or whatever you do it again and this property may be worse i mean it's just overgrown and gnarly full of cerecia lespedeza which is an invasive exotic species and multiflora rose which is another invasive exotic and cerecia or uh, excuse me uh fescue in some areas which is invasive and and I'm just, you know, everyone else is going, why would you leave this crown jewel to go back there to the dump? And I'm going, how fun is it to go back there and see how fast we can do this? And knowing more, set up some controls. Don't treat this area, you know, treat this area, take measurements, take observations. And that really drives me. And so, uh, you know, there's always trade-offs. I'm married. So, hey, Tracy, you, my wife, you want a new house? Because I get this new project. And, <laughs> you know, we just kind of worked it out. You, you ran and the I'll, sale on that. Like, I, I get my project and you get a new house. And, yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I think it, it was mutual. But uh, I, I think also there was truly a feeling for us. And I don't think this would be a common feeling, but why don't we let someone else enjoy what we've created here? And, and I kind of describe it like this. I, I'm very much an outdoorsman and a hunter. And, but if you come to my house, I don't have many mounts or any high dollar wildlife art. I've got my daughter's pictures of critters or scenery or whatever on the wall. And people ask me about that because a lot of people like me might have some wildlife art on the wall or something like that. And, and I just say, you know, I'd rather have those funds to go on my next adventure see the sunrise in the Rockies or do whatever than I would mount that elk. I mean, I'm still going to save the antlers and make a nice plaque. Mm -hmm. And this is just me. There's not a right or wrong, but, and I'm going to have the venison. I'm going to have the meat and I'm going to have the fur, but I don't have to, I'd rather take that other money. I might spend for tax service, just me personally and go on my next adventure or put it toward my next adventure. And that's kind of like yeah. this was, let's, you know, take maybe a little profit out of proving grounds here and see how fast we can turn this other property around. We know how to build roads better. You know, we know how to make ponds better. We know how to do native habitat better. We know the percentage of food plots that we need versus what we don't need. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I'm sure you can tell. I'm super excited. Instead of being remorseful, I am super excited. Yeah, it, it almost it almost seems like your approach with your approach to it, it's almost like you have, uh, you almost have an artistic quality to the property, right? Where it's, it's the, it's not necessarily the finished product. It's the, it's the creation. It's the process of creation where you get to like put everything into practice. Right. 
it's the process, absolutely. And seeing, oh, these species are showing up now. You know, some species may not show up till the second burn or whatever, or I've realized I need to do more growing season burns. Growing season would be when plants are actively growing and most prescribed fire throughout the whitetails range is a dormant season. You know, can on your latitude north, south, March, April, May, sometime in there. And that's good, but if you think about it, grasses grow and set their seeds late. Most species of native grasses, big blue stem, little blue stem, what have you, set seed real late. And so they're gonna hold it on the stem most of the winter. And, and people are doing dormant season burns, I do too. You're making the perfect seed bank right when that seed is laying on top and ready to germinate. But a lot of the really high quality forbs for wildlife make seed during the growing season, June, July, August, some seed real early, some later, some later. And if you only do a dormant season burn, those seeds are covered up by mulch and grass seeds or whatever, and they may not express yourself. You always got a little ragweed as an example. Ragweed makes its seed pretty late in the growing season. But if you do these growing season burns, I found out you end up with about 70% forbs, broadleaf plants, and that's what deer want, like a forb, a soybean's a forb. Forbs are what grow antlers and grow milk for fawns. And forbs hold more insects for turkey poults or pheasant poults than just grasses. And forbs shade out the ground a little bit to hold moisture and also shade out so avian predators can't find these young wildlife down there. Where grass, you're kind of seeing down in right, grass is biggest at the bottom and smallest at the top. Forbs are what we call umbrella habitat, bigger at top, just a stem at the bottom. So there are many game and non-game uh, neotropical migrant birds that need that forb habitat, which is missing out of many areas in America. Uh, it's either a closed canopy forest or it's only a dormant season burn like most CRP fields and you get a grass monoculture. And so I learning this... Go ahead. I can't help but to laugh as you're talking because you're adding little cliff notes in there that's all new. Like there's information that you're able to drop as a side note in just talking. <laughs> just like the ragweed goes to lead seed later in the season or just any of this kind of stuff. It's just like that's that, just so densely packed with I'm I'm just fascinated by it. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Uh, I, I didn't want to jump in there. It was just like, yeah. I, was, I kept on cracking up as you were going like, oh my gosh, I just got so much information in my head and you just talked for like 30 seconds. <laughs> I think that's the, what drives me to be a field biologist is because by these observations and being out there, oh, I never noticed that before. Uh, and it just allows you to learn and then replicate and burn and learn again or, you know, or whatever. I'll give you an example. There's a, it's just as invasive exotic, but it's not very invasive. It's called Queen Anne's Lace. It's got a big flower in it. Mm -hmm. Sometime back when it escaped out somebody's garden and now it's all over the, you know, landscape out here. I've never really noticed deer eating on it. And just by chance, just, just, just the odds. A, a pretty good buck here at the property walked in front of a trail camera, a video trail camera, and starts gnawing down on these big old Queen Anne's lace leaves. And when I pulled the card and looked at the video, I, I had no idea deer ever touched that. I, and, and so, and I just pulled the card and the deer had been there like a day or two for So it's all fresh. So we go out there and sure enough, just down the little path, about four feet, there's some more Queen Anne's lace. Now deer through smell and through photo reflection, you know, how light reflects off the leaves, 
they kind of pick the best leaves. Like if you ever see a deer in a soybean field, they don't stand in one place and eat like a cow. They pick one leaf and go pick a leaf. They're picking the very best and leaving the rest. So when you pool what's called nearby samples, they're probably lower quality because the deer consume the high quality one. But anyway, we pulled a couple of Queen Anne's leaves or several and sent them into a lab. And this was mid to late July, about the time deer are mobilizing calcium to harden antlers. Okay, they start hardening long before the velvet comes off. And I sent this in, and lo and behold, the Queen Anne's lace is one of the highest plants I've ever tested for calcium. And for a narrow winter, there are about two weeks. Deer are going to select that just for the calcium. Now, I'm not saying go plant Queen Anne's lace. There's other plants that are high in calcium, too, but who knew? And right. you got to be willing to test or to, you know, to run with those observations. So, so when you're doing this, when you, you're, you're learning all these new tricks as you go along, right? And that's just part of the process. I mean, that's, that's if, if you were generally to quantify science, it's that, right? Like it's just mm-hmm. a continuous process of learning new information. Um, when, when you're taking this approach to this new, it's 800 acres, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got this new 800 acres. How, is it a process in your mind as far as I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that? I, I, I need to set this first and then I need to establish that. What's sort of your, your very, very high level of things that you try to target initially when you're looking at a new piece of land, especially as you said, like where it's in rough shape, like you described? I'm, I'm going to backdoor this one. I like to read a lot and I travel a lot for my work. So I read or audio books or whatever. And I was listening a couple of years ago to Daniel Boone's biography. And it's not only entertaining. And he was, he was a skilled writer. He couldn't spell worth the Durham, but he's a skilled writer. Uh, <laughs> and obviously a brilliant explorer. Uh, but when he crossed over the mountains and got to Kentucky, the thing that struck me so much was how park-like it was. A tree here, a tree there. It was a savanna. And now east of Mississippi or I'm slightly west of Mississippi, we mainly have closed canopy forest, but many of our game and non-game species, a lot of salamanders and whatnot, need that savanna-type habitat. That's what was here before the Europeans altered the habitat. And so my first step on most properties in this part of the world over to the East Coast is get more sun to the forest floor, get more sunshine, because, you know, everything starts with photosynthesis. Everything starts with photosynthesis. And let's take it one step further. You probably remember from seventh grade biology, the the product of photosynthesis is C6H12O6, six carbons. I won't get too scientific here. Six carbons. Well, humans are 70% plus carbon. Deer are 70% plus carbon. Rich dirt. People say, oh, look at that big black dirt, man. That dirt's good. Black, carbon's black. When you see really black dirt, that's full of carbon. When you see light dirt, people call light soil. It's not very good, not productive. There's not much carbon in it. And now it's up in the atmosphere, right? And this is a different rabbit trail, but farming, bad farming practices have put more carbon in the air than, than the industrial mechanisms. It's all about farming, folks. It's about our soil. And so I'm going to probably kill some trees, which sounds so bad. Smoky Bear, oh my gosh, we're killing trees. But they've been mismanaged. And the lowest hanging fruit for me in this part of the world is where the cedars have taken these natural openings. So the first thing I'll do is start felling cedars. Just simple fell cedars with chainsaw. Cedars don't require herbicide. If you fell a cedar below the bottom limb, it's terminated. It won't sprout back. 
And these are eastern red cedars. The northern people always get mad, and I said it's because they have white cedars, which is a highly preferred deer food. These are eastern red. Deer don't eat them unless they're starving. And I'll fell cedars and let them lay for two years. Here's some magic. Here's something you learn, you know, from doing this. If you burn them the first year, well, the stems still have a lot of moisture, so you won't get very good consumption. Looks kind of ugly. Nothing wrong with it, but looks kind of ugly on landscape, right? If you let them lay for two years, not only will those little needles be wicking moisture out of the stems, but these really valuable native plants that deer just love to eat or don't make seed very frequently or whatever, will grow up in those cedar skeletons where deer really can't get to them. And you get a year or two of seed production. So I fill cedars and leave them lay for two years to kind of guard the area from maximum browse pressure so I get a really good seed crop of these new native species. And then drop a match and let a fire hatch in there. And that hatching is really high quality habitat. That is a really interesting trick. So, so you're using, you're basically using cedar as like your, your deer protectant so you can grow yeah. up new plants. It's my little fences all over, but they're randomly little scattered fence. all yeah, over. Exactly what it is. Yeah. And it doesn't exclude deer from the area, from cover or browsing in there. It's just, you know, pick a number. It's protecting 50% of the land or depending on how many cedars in the area, 60% or 40%. So you're giving these new crops, if you will, a chance to make seed and replicate and allowing deer to have, and quail and turkeys and everything else to have access to the area also. Okay, so you're establishing your open areas and then you're, I mean, but the biggest thing that I'm hearing from you, because what I'm not hearing is I'm dumping fertilizer, I'm dumping new seeds, I'm, uh, you know, you're, you're not manipulating the environment, you're leveraging the environment at hand to do new things with it, right? I think what I we're doing is replace fertilizer and stuff, but I mean, it, for the most part, it sounds like you you look at a lot of leverage points. Well, let's rephrase it this way, if you will. We're restoring native habitat. When we read the early explorers, I mean, Daniel Boone's one, but everyone knows yeah. Lewis and Clark, but it turns out in all the areas, there was a trapper or, you know, convict or somebody that was literate and they would take notes. Here in my area, it was a guy named Schoolcroft and he was looking for lead deposits for mining. He's one of the first guys that wrote notes about this area to come through and he would, you know, hole up in the cave or something every day and every morning he'd write in his journal. Well, someone found that journal and published it. And so there's a firsthand look at what this habitat looked like pre-European settlement or at the very beginning of European settlement before they'd altered the habitat much. So we know he talks about, you know, walking through these open stands of timber and grass being five foot tall. And no one thinks about buffalo being in Missouri, but herds of bison everywhere. And this is what's really interesting. And all the days he recorded, I actually had to go through and highlight them all to count them all. All the days he recorded smelling wildfire from Native Americans setting fire, either to burn out a neighboring tribe, they use those as a weapon, yeah. or to make better habitat to attract the buffalo to their hunting ground. Because the buffalo so want that fresh growth. Yeah. So I have found that by replicating these natural processes, and now you know we're using chainsaws now or whatever, but by the end goal, the end structure, trees per acre, these type of things, um, has produced really, really high quality habitat. 
and I do, I will create food plots. I love food plots, it, but I don't use fertilizer. I have found and brilliant researchers, not me, brilliant re, Dr. Ward, brilliant soil scientist, uh, Ray Archuleta, brilliant soil scientist. I mentioned his names because you, you can find these people on YouTube. Yeah, they're yeah. very giving, they're giving with their knowledge. I'm just learning from these guys. Uh, every acre on the planet here has about 30 plus tons of nitrogen in the air above it. Every acre. Why would we ever pay for nitrogen, which is highly toxic in the form it comes in in fertilizer? And every acre has parental rock below it somewhere. And that means you got about 10,000 pounds of phosphorus for every acre. Why would you ever pay for phosphorus? And this is fascinating. If I'm going down the rabbit trail too far, you tell me. So why do we use all these, you know, these. I'm along for the ride. This is good. Why do we use all these synthetics? Well, we didn't know how to make nitrogen until World War II. It actually, a German scientist discovered how to make synthetic nitrogen, trying to build a bomb. And Germany fortunately lost the war and he came to America and he knew, had this recipe in his brain how to build nitrogen. That's where nitrogen fertilizer came from. And phosphorus, there was plenty, but we started plowing. And plowing does several things. It compacts soil, but lets more oxygen in the soil than God would have, let's say, because we had earthworm holes and dung beetle holes. And that just let a certain amount of air to infiltrate the soil and let water freely infiltrate, percolate into the soil. And we started plowing, which seems to loosen it up, right? But then it crust over. And we kill those little organisms by the gazillions when we run a plow through there, turning their habitat up. Um, so the, there was about 60 million bison on the Great Prairie, people estimate, with no additives. Bison weigh, you know, 1,500, 2,000 pounds a piece, more meat than cattle now, with no additives, no pollutants. Yes, they're, they're, they're very large cows. <laughs> yeah, very, very large cows. That tastes good. So taking this to heart, the bottom line is microbes in the soil convert the air, the nitrogen out of air to plant usable, and the phosphorus and the sulfur and the boron and iron and everything a plant needs. What we're missing are the microbes. A teaspoon of a bison rumen or deer rumen or a cow rumen has about a trillion microbes in it. So if we get the synthetics out of the way and let these ungulates, these rumen mammals, grazers, if you will let them, not to be crude, but salivate, urinate, defecate on land, you get all the microbes right back in there. So I just quit fertilizing my food plots and quit disking. I don't disk. I only no-till drill or broadcast. And we have not used any fertilizer in eight years. And I had a very, very high-end soil lab come do some research here. And they found that our soils here are better on average than the best farmland in Iowa. And I'm in the Ozark Mountains in a county named Stone County, as in Rocky, Stone County. So you can build dirt anywhere. We're building dirt. And wherever you purchase land or whatever you do, you can make it better. And I was taught in college, it takes about a thousand years to build an inch in soil. You're thinking thousand years, fully with that, man, I'm gonna go buy some fertilizer and throw it out. And that may be true if we're talking about weathering rock down, but that did not encounter microbial action. So how, I won't go any further, how science got off course. When scientists started doing good statistical testing, they needed to make sure all the soil in the greenhouse or the pots was exactly the same, literally, literally. So they would fumigate it, make sure there weren't any worms swooping in there, anything like that, and they killed all the microbes. Without microbes, you have to feed the plant. 
because microbes actually go in and out of plant. And this is the beauty of the whole system. This is what it all comes down to. The microbes get NPK, again, sulfur, iron, whatever they need out of soil. But they're not getting carbon because carbon is a product of photosynthesis, the sun, C6H12O6. And they literally go in plant roots and say, hey, you need some phosphorus? I'll give you phosphorus if you give me some carbon. So there's a big economy in the soil of microbes trading all the elements the plant needs for carbon. And the plant freely makes carbon. Give me a leaf, give me water, and give me sunshine. I'll give you all the carbon you want. And when we started plowing soil, we interrupted that economy. And it's literally that simple. And so I I've quit plowing. With, with fungi as well, right? So microbes and fungi both take part in this carbon exchange, correct? Or, yeah. or am I off base? Well, yes, but fungi should be about 70% of your soil because what fungi can do, I mean, they break down, right? They're breaker downs, so they're yeah. detritus, they break down. But what they can do, a, a mycorrhizal fungi can be 50 miles long in three feet. So plant roots are stationary, right? And if there's a worm dropping a half inch from the plant root, it can't get to it. But fungi can get that and take it back and forth to the plant. And so fungus are very important. Ideal soil would be about 70% fungus, 30% microbes, give or take. And so we've worked really hard to build those type of soils here. You can farm intentionally for that. And that's called regenerative ag, which is sweeping America. Fortunately, it's about time. And those farmers that practice this are so much more profitable because they're not paying for all these inputs. Right, right. So theoretically, some of the things that you're practicing could be put into practice as farming as well. If, they do. If they, they are. They do. And I'm speaking at a soil health conference in Kansas coming up. I mean, Kansas, big ad state. So, yeah, Virginia yeah, Vag, there's some great guys out there and gals, families doing their Virginia Vag. And not only are they more profitable, I mean, they're recycling water, recycling air, giving us fresh air no erosion because their soil is always covered. We want plants growing year round. And to put this in scale for our listeners that may not understand this. So if you buy traded corn or the fanciest corn and all the latest herbicides and fungicide and pesticide and all these things, it's going to cost you about $5 a bushel, just your input cost to raise corn. For years, corn has been three, three fifty. Now it's, you know, five, five fifty. Bottom line is to be really honest without government subsidies, you're going broke. It's just, it's horrible to say that's a fact. Virginia bag farmers have about $1.20, $1.30 in a bushel of corn because they don't put all those inputs in there. They plant their own seed. The seed they harvested that adapted and obviously worked well on their land, they plant it. They're not worried about these traits. And right. they, they plant, they combine, they sell, they go home. And, and, and I think a funner way to put this or a more telling way is a traditional farmer using all the chemicals, basically a chemical farmer, he wakes up every day saying, what do I need to kill today? Which pest do I need to kill today? Literally. And a Virginia Bag farmer goes, well, look at all this life out here. And if you've got a gazillion spiders, you know, you've done this. You're driving somewhere and the sun's just right in the morning. It's dewy. You look out across the field and you go, Oh my gosh, there's a million spider webs out there. <laughs> You've done it, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's the floaters, right? Yeah. And and people say, oh, uh, us Virginia bag people are saying, in that because those are predators and reading mm-hmm. the pest species. That's our insect control. 
That's our beautiful insect. They're not eating a crop. They're eating other insects. I want to see as many spiders. And by the way, spiders, of course, are soft-shelled. They are high-protein, and they're the ideal turkey and quail poke food. But when you spray everything, we don't have insects for not only these game species, but non-game songbirds that need insects, too, for their young to feast on. Right. And I don't think anyone got up and said, man, I can't wait to go get some atrazine on my hands today when I'm spraying my corn. No one says that, right? No one says that. So when right. you can get out of herbicide game, it's just such a good feeling for you and the planet. I love that. I again, I I, I find myself kind of like drifting off as far as like, like you know, we we kind of like spider web to new topics and stuff. And I'm, I, I think I I think everybody goes into a conversation with an agenda, and it's like, nah, I lost the agenda. I'm just interested <laughs> in the topic at hand. Like this is all just really interesting to me. I I love it. Um. I, I did want to ask you, it's sort of a, sort of a pivot, pivot on the conversation. Um, you, you know, just to, to go into discussion, like what, what was it like to work with us? Uh, you know, so now that, now that you've like sold with and, and you had specific agency you were working with and you can't working with national land is kind of like, well, you, you worked with us kind of, but it's really the credit goes to the agent, right? I mean, it, yeah. whoever you work with individually really makes, really makes it come together for you. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to take credit away from, from the the personalities that you worked with, but um, I wanted to ask you sort of what the sales process was like and, and to, to take it away from being let, you know, I don't want to make it like a, well, let me tell you about working with national land. That's always kind of cheesy. But what I was curious about more so than working with us was, was it emotional to get rid of the proving grounds? Like that's, that's something I'm really interested to find out. Like sometimes in life you're dealt a soft landing. And when Trace and I started talking about, boy, it'd be fun to start this new project. I had a couple, you know, my clients, you know, I'm a consultant that had large Western ranches and <laughs> they'd use Firmex and said, boy, you need to use Firmex, boy, you know, whatever, whatever. And I, I've been buying land for 20 years. I haven't sold anything, so I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, we called up Firmex. Oh, yeah, you know, we got this covered. And, and we listed it with them, to be honest, and never showing nothing. But that gave Trace and I months, many months to start really hey this might happen hey we we need to start looking at house plans right where where are we going to put our house you know how much does it cost to bore well these days how are we going to get internet there you know those things you have to go through right when you're getting ready to move so we had some time to kind of load our thoughts up and kind of get there hey this might really happen and 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 that sale didn't occur and i'm friends with joe by he's one of your agents he's down in alabama and joe has a podcast we met because of this podcast and just kind of stayed friends. We have a lot of things in common. And and I called up Joe and said, you know, property didn't sell. We kind of got excited about starting over, you know, we kind of got our momentum going that way. And, and uh, I knew Joe through the podcast, not through national land realty. Yeah. And, uh, and Joe and I were talking and he said, well, what'd they do? And I kind of told him some steps. He said, oh, that's odd. We don't do it that way. And, and Joe and I've been meaning to get together. I said, Hey man, why don't you come out to the ranch here? And I just want to show you around you know, give some thoughts. All right. So he, he met us out here and he called one of his buddies, Jeremy. Jeremy Lira is an agent in the area here. And I did not know Jeremy. And they come, man, we're just talking hunting and fishing. And I'm showing you the native vegetation, all the plant species. I, that's just what we were doing. 
just three guys out in a buggy riding around a property, you know. And they shared with me some of the stuff they do and their experiences, whatever. And they visit with Chase and I. And anyway, we said, well, heck, no one ever told us this stuff before. Maybe we try this again. Because Trace and I are kind of never, never land. Well, it didn't sell. Well, it sell. You know, we're never, never land now. And so I think the relationship with Joe just allowed me to see the vision because we're just talking like you and I are talking. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that really got us both excited, they showed us Land Tour 360, which when the word got on the street that we were going to sell to Proven Ground, so I don't mean this wrong, but kind of a property with the name or a lot of people knew about it. Um, a lot of agents had come to us and same thing. Hey, give me this, you know, kind of, Hey, how you doing? My name's Fred. Give me the listing. It was just kind of like that, you know, and nice to so, meet yeah. you. Can you give me your money? <laughs> yeah. 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 It's kind of a it, turnoff, right? It was to me. My, my personality, yeah. it was to me. And, uh, so anyway, got to playing around and looking at other listings, national land real they had with land tour. Like, man, that is cool. I mean, everyone's got a drone these days, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, the landowner probably took some pictures for the agent got there. If they didn't, the agent took a few pictures of the, you know, the house and the pond and you know, whatever, you know, land tour was so different that just really intrigued Trace and I. So we thought about it, prayed about it for a month or so. Called Jeremy said, are you, you know, are you serious? Would you help us with this? You know, would you really kind of hold our hand through this? Oh yeah. So they said, we're going to come back down and do this stuff. And I'm like, okay, what, you know, what day, what do you need me to do? You know, I'll have you lunch. And no, we don't, we don't want any of that. You know, we just do our stuff. Just so they did literally, which was new to me. Cause I had been providing everything. I actually wrote the text and everything for, you know, Oh, I didn't realize you had done that much work for the previous. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and we did share some images and whatnot, you know, and video yeah. and stuff. Um, and so they got a listing up and Tra- uh, Trace and I's past experience was just nothing. So we were, we weren't expecting anything, right? That's, that's the norm for us. And I not been I don't remember exactly a week, 10 days, whatever they called up and say, Hey, we'd be okay if we have a show next week. We're like, what, what's the show you know, we don't know the show. What's the show So, uh, they did, <coughs> excuse me. And, um, and within a week later, we had a written offer, not, Hey, I think the guy's interested. We had a written offer and, and a great offer. Uh, and how did that, it's, I was curious if you were told how the buyer came in, how they found, found it on the website. The, okay. Found it on the website. The buyer had worked with another company. He'd bought land before, uh, but he went to national land realty and it was the land tour 360. He's like, man, this is, this is what I'm looking for. It's got all this beautiful native habitats, got the food plots established, has a nice house. One of the things he said, he did not want to build a house. And they had done a walkthrough inside the house with a special, yeah. yes, very special technology. Trace and I were just shocked at that. Uh, shocked. Because uh, we thought they were going to come here, you know, like everyone does. I got a GoPro and here's the kitchen. And, Here's, you know, the deck, you know, that's what we'd experienced. So we just thought that's what I've got to do. And they brought a special firm in. This guy's got this whole harness thing and, you know, special camera. It was almost like sci-fi. And then when we got to see it and take the tour, it was so incredible. Um, anyway, so we were scared once we got haters and offer. Cause like, Oh, this is, you know, we kind of got in the mindset. This isn't going to happen. So 
it is going to happen. And, and, uh, so we signed some papers, we showed up at the closing and that was it. That's the work we put into it. Sounds and awful. <laughs> it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. Yeah, no, it was awesome. And the buyer and I have become friends because our, you know, there's only a Bob neighbors now. Yeah, yeah, we're neighbors and we've become buddies and sharing. I'm teaching him about, you know, hey, the bucks usually go here this time of year on the property or whatever, and you know, he's teaching me some stuff too. So seems like a great relationship. Thinking about being being him and buying a property and basically having a mentor for your neighbor for that property is pretty advantageous. It's a pretty great opportunity for him. <laughs> Heck, you're probably not killing bigger deer than I did. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> so Chris, his name's Chris. So gracious. He's, he, you know, he's, Hey, you know, you, you, you know, cause people ask about the proven grounds. If you want to show people how you did this or that, you know, upsell, yeah. whatever. He's been a very gracious neighbor. That's amazing. And, uh, That's cool. Yeah. Not everybody's yeah. like that. No, no, no. Very good guy. So, um, I want to, I want to give you a chance to plug your, your show. Um, you know, you, you work to get eyeballs and get people informed and, and bring people into the amount of knowledge that you spread. Um, tell me about the show. When people can, when can people catch it? Uh, how does it work? Pretty much any streaming platform, of course, YouTube, um, Apple, Roku, I'm Prime. I'm, I'm missing some here, Amazon. Uh, we produce at least one new show a week, every week, 52 weeks out of the year. We've never had a repeat. We've never missed a week. Um, and it started simply because I didn't want to travel quite as much for consulting. I wonder, well, I wonder if people will just tune in and watch and good quality partners will come alongside us and help us share this information. That was 14 years ago. We're 700 plus episodes into it now. And uh, it's been great. 700 700 plus. We've never missed a week in 14 years. Um, And I enjoy enjoy learning first. But learning doesn't do you much good unless you share it with people. So we film whatever we're doing that week. I mean, whatever it is, planting, burning, hunting, whatever we're doing is what we share the failures and the successes. And it's not like drama, just I'm a scientist. We're pretty boring. Just is what it is, you know? And, um, and it's been well received. And so, yeah, just check out growing deer, just search on growing deer. You'll find us. I was going to say, so this is on grow it, the, to find this, it's growing deer.tv and the topics. So if I were just I, opening up your website at random, and how you were describing that it's just whatever you were doing that week. The, the topics are so wide ranging and looking at the nutrition of what deer eat or the, the organisms in the soil on any given day or going through your soil test results. Like you were getting very, very specific. I mean, I think it seems like you were giving away like the accumulated knowledge of, I don't know how many scientists now, just by working through your property, like there's so much value in what you're doing. Um, it's it's really an incredible thing. Thank you. It's kind of targeted, you know, for wildlife landowners, people that enjoy recreational land or wildlife land. And there's a bunch of them. Uh, and we want them to be able to 
have joy and experience the fun of owning land. And some people seem like they fight, well, this isn't working. This isn't working. Gosh, this cost me an arm and leg to do. Wish I hadn't have done that. And that's the worst one, right? We, we're still consulting. You show up there and maybe they got some bad information somewhere and they cut every tree on their property. Or my favorite one is they got over Forrester and Forrester said, no, we're only going to cut the 18 inch and larger trees, which are the biggest, best trees on the property. And maybe the landowner didn't buy it for timber value. Maybe they bought it for aesthetic value or acorn mm-hmm. production or whatever. So we just want to share stuff to help people maybe not make a mistake, give them some free information. And of course that's possible by partners like y'all and other companies coming along beside us and, and helping us share this information. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to make a mistake that you have to wait 30 years to fix, right? Like to get, to get other trees back in place. That's a, that's a, almost a permanent mistake. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and let me make them. Or I've already made them. I promise you, in my 31 years of being incorporated, I've already made them. <laughs> and, and one thing that people really like on our shows, again, we're go consult, and sometimes we're film as we're laying out the plan, and we'll go back two or three years and film. It's kind of like remodeling a house or something. Yeah, and, yeah, just see how it turned out. Yeah, and, and people really love that because I think it gives them a vision. Oh, this is what I can expect if I implement this technique or this this project. People really enjoy those, and I enjoy them. I enjoy people loving their land and having success and seeing more fawns than they used to see or hearing more turkeys or or just seeing those beautiful wildflowers out there. I So many families have told me, you know, I believed we'd see some, you know, more deer or bigger deer, but I did not know it'd be this pretty. That just That just makes me feel so good. Yeah, especially, I mean, you know, somebody, if somebody is uh, enamored with your life's work, that's got to be feel, feel pretty fulfilling, you know? Yeah. I mean, making people happy. Who doesn't like to make people happy? You know, there's comedians, there's artists. I'm a wildlifer, and, and you know, I like making people happy. And maybe this is just in my mind, but as we teach them these simple systems of just the carbon cycle, like we talked about, really simple systems, I think they're better stewards of the planet. Right. They understand that when when we spray herbicide all over the ground, it's going in somebody's groundwater. That's just a fact. It just you just can't get around it. And I'm not anti-herbicide. I look at herbicide like a root canal. Boy, if I need one from losing another tooth, I'm gonna get a root canal, but I don't want one. And if right. there's really some invasive exotic weeds that are just spreading, you're gonna need a herbicide most likely to control those. So let's let's just don't apply it for recreation. Let's only apply it where it's needed. Yeah, it's probably the right approach. Well, hey, um, I I want to respect your time. Uh, you know, we we budgeted you for an hour, and I know that you have some uh, some deer stands to get to out on your property. Um, so I want to let you get back to that. But Grant, as always, man, I I really really appreciate your time. I, I always learn so much every time I talk to you, and and I'm hoping you know anybody that listens to this can pick up some new information as well. Hey, thanks for having me, Mac. Thanks for all you do uh, for landlords out there everywhere. Appreciate that. And be sure to check out growingdeer.tv, everybody out there. This concludes episode number 17 for the National Land Realty Podcast, discussing land improvements with Dr. Grant Woods. You can learn more about land ownership and the buying and selling of land at nationalland.com.
Hey there, listeners. This is Mac Christian again. Uh, you thought you were getting away from me. Uh, no, I just wanted to throw a little bit of a PS on this podcast. Be sure to like, follow, and review us on this podcast. Uh, it really does help people find us, helps people find our information, and helps us provide value to more people. Also, in that time that you should be uh, working and you're listening to podcasts on your headphones, be sure to check out Land Tour 360 at nationalland.com. Like we've said before, it's really amazing technology. You can see some really cool things on there. Everybody have a great one and thank you again for listening.